The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now on Fast, a tale of two markets. Regional banks crushed again following the collapse of SVB and Signature Bank. While big cap tech, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet moved solidly higher. Is the street more afraid of a bank crisis or cheered by a potential Fed pause? We'll debate that. Plus, the crypto comeback. Why investors seemingly flocked to Bitcoin as a safety trade as the banks melted down this past week. We'll chart BTC's next move. And later, a dollar in a dream. It's the 37th anniversary of Microsoft going public. We'll show you the staggering return and ask our if now is the time to trade it or fade it. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site. Full desk here in-house tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Fadwa Nyson, and Steve Grasso. We start off with a real battle between fear and greed. The action of the regional banks after the collapse of SVB and Signature was downright scary today. The KRE, the regional bank ETF, finishing the day down 12%, its 10th drop in 11 days. First Republic, the biggest loser, closing the session down almost 62 percent, at one point falling more than 70 percent. A host of other regionals, PacWest, KeyCorp, Bank United, Zions, also getting hit hard today. And then there's the move in rates, the two-year with its biggest three-day move since October of 1987. We all know what happened then. But then there's this, the ARK Innovation Fund jumping more than two and a half today. Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, solidly higher. So yes, there was a bank meltdown with lots of carnage. But Goldman Sachs is out saying this could cause the Fed to stand pat. No rate hike next week. So here's the question. Does a Fed on hold outweigh fears of a banking crisis? Tim, that's what the market seems to be telling us. I, I think in the short run, it's easy to see where triple Q's and the Nasdaq and the big, you know, the, the, the massive money center, uh, excuse me, tech companies, yes, they are on some level, are the ones that are outperforming. I, I, I think about the, the, the lending standards that are tightening by the second. I think about the dynamics here for the economy more broadly. Um, those concern me. If you're someone that believes that it's a one-to-one relationship between rates, I would go straight to the Fed fund futures, which were at 565 mm. four days ago, um, are now down to 393 on on where we were at terminal Fed funds, which was out in November. It's now into May. Uh, You know, all of these things on rates. But uh, there's no question that still we always said there was a lot of, uh, you know, Fed impact waiting to hit. And so far, you know, again, we still haven't even seen a lot of the effects here. Yeah. Karen, what do you make of this uh, action today? Well, I mean, a lot of things. There's still a ton of uncertainty, right? We understand the notion of the, at least for these banks, the, the, say the signature um, Silicon Valley Bank. And sorry, do we all have this static? We've got um, static in our ear. Yeah. No, no let problem. me know if I need to listen. Just take a little earpiece out. Yeah. I'll let, let you me know, know if I need to, to know anything, <laughs> like fire or anything. But, um, so uh, that, but I, does it extend more broadly? I sort of assume that it does. But for the, the regionals, like we talked about in the middle of the day, this is just a staggering change because... Every depositor has to be thinking, God, if I have, you know, over 250,000, right. I've got to go somewhere else. I just can't take the risk. And so are we creating now a sort of almost European system of a small number of very large banks? And if you're a regional bank, that's that's quite disconcerting. Right. 
But is it overdone? I think people like the regional banks and they do provide value. Uh, and then the other thing that I found fascinating was um, First Republic, yeah. right? Uh, so it's alive. It's sort of walking dead and it's sad because this is an extraordinary institution. This is a great product. And yet depositors have to leave. Where, where are they going to go? And if you're running this bank and you want to try to sort of get it back on the rails, what, if you maintain deposits, what do you do with them? Do you, can you make loans? Do you have to buy a tiny you know, bit out of the curve? How do, you, how do you run a bank profitably? Right. It seems to me like somebody needs to buy them. Right. And then, of course, yeah. over all of this, overarching is the concern that there's going to be increased regulation on the entire sector, how that will affect banks and their performance and their ability to make money going forward. But at some point, I, mean, I heard this phrase throughout the day, and I think that you know, this is the perfect time to use it. Do, are we throwing the babies out with the bathwater? I mean, at some point, some banks do deserve perhaps a 50% haircut. You know, we won't know for a while. But do, do others deserve that too? Do others deserve a 20%, 30 Because that's what we saw pretty much across the board in regional banks today. Well, I mean, it's the same within that subsector as you've seen with deposits, which is like you're going to make the run first and then ask questions later. Right. You're going to make the run. You're going to at least get your money in a safe place. You're going to shore up your own personal investable liquidity. And then you're going to go through and see what their holdings are in terms of held to maturity securities, um, deposits on hand, concentration risk, things of that nature. And, and to, to answer your, your earlier question in terms of the push-pull between the rate move and where we are um, in terms of the, the stock market performance that we've seen today, I think in the short term, the, the overarching thing has been monetary policy. But if this is the thing that is the first to break, we have yet to see what the implications are of all the tightening that we've seen. And so by that measure, I don't think it's even close. I think this is the first crack. This isn't even a break. This is a crack. They've been able to shore it up. They've rushed. They put all hands on deck and created these facilities to, to shore up liquidity. But what does this mean for the credit markets? That's going to be the breaking. So do you think that that's the reason why the Fed, because that's a long and variable uh, you know, effect or, or pause on it. So do you think the Fed should? Is this a direct reflection? Because that's what I'm asking myself. Is this from the Fed? Were, were, were these actions specifically for, from the Fed? And then he, ha he can't raise this month if, if we've all decided. If the actions you mean the actions were from the Fed, meaning was all of this caused by a rising. rapid rise in interest rates? Right. It certainly was exacerbated by it. So if it was to some extent, then you would think it's warranted for him to, at the very least, pause. I think that they'll probably go 25 basis points because they're just sort of really dug in on that. Um, I, I think that he's warranted to do nothing. But I think that might scare the markets more. Where, I, just let me just add one thing, though. I mean, is it is it the Fed's fault? I mean, doesn't SVB need to be on top I'm of their you. book? Sure. Yes. Right? And especially, yeah. it's not like and oh, by the way, all there was of no a sudden. compliance in place with, with SVB since April. They, that was yeah, another. That was a fascinating there was, there thing. Was right. no compliance in place. But but I did buy buy key today. I bought it, and I was I was definitely going to do it for a day trade. And I wound up staying because I liked the little bit of momentum going into the close. That is truly, I don't want to use the term crapshoot, but it's, it's pretty much a crapshoot because you don't know what's going to happen post-bell, what other companies are going to be taken in by the Fed.
Yeah, the fact that we're vilifying the Fed now because of SVB, I think, is dead wrong. We're talking about a levered mortgage-backed REIT that was not supposed to be in this business. I, I would also point to the fact that we're now looking at banks differently. When were we ever really measuring uh, insured versus uninsured deposits? Never. No one ever right. did this. Never. Yes. How so, many years so, have we been on here? On yeah, the air I've for never fast talked money. about right. this. We've I've never, never raised that phrase. We've never said that phrase. So, so right. you know, while the Fed and their transitory garbage of a year and a half ago really does seem like folly, um, the fact is that we live in a world where the Fed has two mandates right now, um, and one is, is an inflation fighter, um, and that's the more important mandate. And yes, I think Powell told you things were going to break. So, you know, sure. there's, there's the fact that um, the Fed had to come back in and create facilities to, to protect uh, the banking system, because that was really what was at, at, at you know, at, on the edge one of the precipice, is, is really important. By the way, from that program alone, we've just taken back 50 percent of, of QT. They just Boom. brought their right. balance right. sheet back to where it was. We've unwound right. so much of the tightening that was so difficult. Yeah. So, so just one last thing. In 08, they raised the FDIC insurance from 100000 to 250000 mm-hmm. So Karen started off on this. People get panicky. That's where runs on banks happen. If you would just flat out across the board say deposits. All deposits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have enough money to do that. All deposits, you're not going to have a bank run. But when you sit there and there's some ambiguity or some variable nature to this that Signature and SVB were standouts and that's not going to be a blanket statement, that makes people worried. And then you start to really start to pull money out of this and put it into there. Just soothe the markets with that statement. Well, it sounds like yeah. investing in banks is not going to be worth doing anytime soon, because, again, when you're partnering with the government, um, you know, there's birth, death, birth, death yes. and taxes, um, and partnering with the government is something you never want to do. All right. For more on what this means for the future of the Fed and what it may do next week, let's bring in Steve Leisman. You've heard our conversation, Steve. Um, what are you seeing here? Well, what I see is that traders in the Fed funds market, Melissa, are pricing in a much more dramatic fallout from the banking failure than the equity markets do today. In fact, it's a total rethink. The question is, have the Fed funds traders gone too far or have the equities not gone far enough? I'll just show you what you guys have been talking about right here. Here's the concern about the economic and financial impact of SVB's demise shows up in a massive fall in the outlook for Fed rate hikes. The peak funds rate... Now trading at just 475, it was a percentage point higher last week. Uh, and then the year-end fund rate, is I, I just can't believe when I pull this up, 375. So that means that there's betting on about a percentage point of cuts from the current level here by the year-end. All of that expressing skepticism that what's been done is not enough to keep the banking system troubles from dragging down the economy and also, by the way, inflation. So let's look at what's been done in light of what Steve Grasso was talking about they guaranteed deposits at SVB and Signature, and that creates an implicit but not explicit guarantee that other uninsured depositors will be guaranteed. They shut down Signature, of course, created a new fund to finance bank assets, and they ease lending rules at the emergency discount window at the Fed. So officials telling me they intended to signal an implicit guarantee for those uninsured deposits, and there may have been some progress today in staunching the outflow of deposits from certain institutions. But a finding of systemic risk is necessary in order to insure other uninsured depositors. Market trading is if there may be more shoes to drop and that the economic impact is going to be decidedly deflationary. You got the inflation report looming tomorrow. We're trading today, guys, with an 86% probability the Fed is done after one more quarter point hike. 
Wow. Uh, Steve, uh, Karen has a question. Yeah, I have a question related to this plan. I didn't see anything about uh, the FDIC asking or suggesting capital raises for some of these banks that are sort of offsides with uh, their held maturities portfolio. Do you see anything like that? I was specifically thinking of a First Republic. No, what they did with First Republic is, is I think what, when that, Karen, if I'm not mistaken, you don't announce a plan to raise capital. You announce that capital has been raised, yes. right? Yeah, because well, right. We saw that when you get the timing wrong. Don't you send the right. door? You hear about it ex post. You should not hear about it. If you do, um, you should sell. All right, Steve, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much, Steve Leisman. Well, Evercore ISI comparing the bank stress to another scary time on Wall Street, the savings and loan crisis and the crash of 87. Julian Emanuel is the firm's senior managing director at Evercore ISI. Uh, Julian, great to have you here on set. Uh, Steve was just saying, you know, is the bond market pricing in too much versus the equity market pricing in too I mean, where, where should the two meet? at this point. So the problem here, Melissa, is if you think about where rate expectations are right now, we've just talked about it, somewhere between 375 and five and a quarter. So how can we possibly know? And, and the fact is, is until we get more clarity, and I hate to say, use the word data dependency, but we need to see data. But more than that, we need to see how the market responds to the data. Obviously, we won't have to wait too long uh, for that inflation number tomorrow. But the thing is, when you think about it, no one really can make solid assumptions given that kind of variability, and that's why you're seeing the volatility in the equity markets. Let's say Fed funds uh, are right. Let's say we end the year at around 375. Is that good for equity markets or bad for equity markets? So uh, our view is it actually could be both, and let me explain. Because if what we've seen in the last week is the first shot across the bow in terms of the effect of tightening, Uh, We are going to have a recession. That is Ed Hyman's forecast. Uh, We do think it's likely to be mild. And so, therefore, what we're thinking is you're going to get a retest of those October lows, but eventually get that buying opportunity that we've been waiting for for almost two years now that will launch the next bull market phase. So, Julian, I think that the data is out the window. I think that the only data that we care about right now are banks collapsing and the further collapse of banks. So I think that's taken a very distant backseat, and and Tim brought this up. The market has tightened around this more than anything the chairman can do at this point going forward. So should we even pay attention if that number is hot tomorrow? Does it really even matter? Well, we should, because I go back to last Tuesday, and you think about the uncertainty. To think that you would see financial stress of this kind develop in the system 24 hours after Chair Powell suggested he might go 50 on the 22nd, it just tells you how extremely uncertain the environment is. But, but the, the, that wasn't as a result of the Fed, right? That wasn't, Chair, what the market has done over the last couple of days, SVB ran to market um, really on the same day in the afternoon. So um, I, I, I guess my question to you, though, as a market strategist is, has this only elongated this whole process? Everyone wanted this bear market to, and, and even the Fed, to be aggressive and quick and over with. But when I look at where we still don't know where we are on credit, I look at standards for banks. Again, I think they've tightened immediately. Uh, and I think the impact on the economy is something we don't know. I think it's another headwind to the economy. I guess it's a long way of saying we wanted this thing to be over with in a year. I, I think 
the events of the last three days have only extended the timeline for people to say all clear for another 12 months. I, I, I would I differ on that. I, I think really, if, if you look at it, we were having conversations last week uh, with clients uh, out of all places on the West Coast uh, talking <laughs> about how the no landing scenario was operative, talking about the idea that rate hikes were no longer able to have the kind of monetary transmission mechanism that they've had for the last 50 years. All of that's out the window. And I would suggest that, again, uh, and look, part of the end game is we do want to see enough of a downturn to make stocks attractive, to cause this you know, cathartic moment where we can reset and multiples can begin expanding as the economic cycle turns. But we're still a ways from that. However, I would suggest, whereas people were thinking, well, this could last into 24, it does feel like the downturn is closer than we thought a week ago. We talk often, Julian. You're, you're on the show. You're on CNBC a lot. I don't, I don't think that there would have been a time where if somebody had asked you, what's the next tape bomb you see, that you would have said Silicon Valley bank shares or, or run on, on the banking system, right? So I'm wondering, like, now that you think out in terms of the, the, the ramifications of Fed tightening and, and where we could see further cracks in the system, what, what's on your radar at this point? I, I think the, the next thing that we really need to be cognizant of is how credit in general trades. One of the hallmarks of the last nine months is that credit was very well behaved once we figured out that Europe wasn't going to implode over the summer. We've seen some widening over the last week or so, but nowhere near commensurate with the kind of moves we've seen in regional banks. We'll be looking at that very closely for signs of stress in the system. Julian, thank you. Good to see you. Julian you. Emanuel, Evercore ISI. That's something yeah. that you've been following. I mean, are yes. we whistling past the graveyard when it comes well, to credit and how I mean, relatively behaved it's been? So the HYG, on a day that the yield curve moved the way it did, mm -hmm. right, you would think it would be up. And in fact, it was up earlier in the day, but it closed down, telling you that spreads widened and they widened even more because rates went up. But not even close to a warning sign or a flashing light at all. So I'm staying short that and, and the LQD. So I understand the debate around what the Fed has done and what type of activity that has encouraged, right? We've had loose monetary policy for quite some time. Now we're tightening and there are going to be some things that break. But to Tim's point, the Fed's not responsible for risk management and oversight within a singular institution. That is up, up to you to determine as a shareholder, as an investor, and as you know, a, a C-suite executive there. And then what you mentioned about credit, as long as credit stays, I, I think we're, you know, you're looking at Fed, Fed funds and you're looking at this quick pivot, credit is where the Fed is going to continue to focus. And as long as that stays in line, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of like- a, High yield a, spreads a, have widened pivot. 65 bips in two days. I mean, so- 65 it, bips, it, but again, we're still, still, still like- yeah. Yeah. But we're, we're nowhere close to the north of 10 or 11. What are we like? 875, nine in terms of high yield spreads. I mean, or sorry, high yield returns. I, we have a long ways to go. 200, 300 basis points before you start to kind of hit that panic button. Banks are extremely well regulated. Right. Some would, would posit that they're perhaps oh. over regulated. And somehow this still happened. And so I, I understand and I completely get your point and agree with it in terms of it was it was that bank's responsibility to manage their risk. But at the same time, when you're in a crisis of confidence, you think this is a regulated system. How come the regulators? There's no feeling of a safety net here. And I think maybe that is 
part of the reason this this whole thing is like well, a vortex. Well, no one, is going no one thought, and I think I think Karen brought this up. No one thought you had to worry about in signature, right. in signature that ninety percent of the deposits were above the FDIC yeah. insurance level. So that's the one thing that's glaring going forward. But, but, but usually, but, what but, regulators do is they'll fish around and they'll change a bunch of other stuff. Uh, with the Fed, though, they are responsible for the long and variable lags to understand that. But and, if I, and I sorry. Well, I just but, I hear you. But if I have concentration risks as a portfolio manager and I'm invested all in one in one sector, I'm going to have risk committees all over the place tapping me on the shoulder right. saying I'm not allowed to get as yeah. much. So so and, and when you talk about also the, the collateral that's now eligible to be pledged at this BTFP, what are we talking about? And this is a thing that, I, you know, maybe we still don't know, because there are mortgage backed securities that are more esoteric and bizarre, even though they're based on government securities. What's allowable? And if that's allowable at par, I think we're letting people off the hook. Agree. Yeah. Uh, we got a news alert on United Airlines. Phil LeBeau's got all the details. Phil. Melissa, take a look at shares of United Airlines down about 6% after hours. And initially, this was a knee-jerk reaction because the company put out an 8K this afternoon saying that it expects a loss in the first quarter of between 60 cents and a dollar a share. The street was expecting a profit of 64 cents a share. The reason they are taking the expense of an expected pilot contract that was expected to be finalized in the second quarter, moving that expense into the first quarter, no change in the full year guidance. Great. If there's no change in the full year guidance, why is the stock down this much? Ah, you have to look further within the 8K. And within the 8K, they talk about a change in the seasonal patterns, a return to more normal seasonal patterns. So as a result, the revenue per seat mile guidance for the first quarter is going to be up 22 to 23 percent instead of the previous guidance of up 25 percent. There's some of that pressure there. But they expect Q2 to be stronger than previously expected, up mid-teens in terms of a percentage. And then there's the language about new seasonal patterns, Melissa. And I think this is the reason the stock's under pressure. January and February, the increase, not as much as the traditionally strong travel months. We're talking about spring and summer. This may be, Melissa, the start of the airline industry saying we're going to more seasonal, normal patterns and the end of what we've heard for the last year. Great. Going bang- gangbusters. Nothing's changing. That's why I think the stock is down as much as it is. Wow. Okay, Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. Uh, Tim, what do you think? Well, I, I think United is still up 35% year-to-date even after that move. I think Delta and the others, Delta's down 12% in two days as well. Uh, Phil's points are important because we always worry about the airlines going back to their bad ways. And their bad ways are their inefficient ways. And whether it's throwing too much capacity at a problem when demand is falling off. If they're telling us demand is starting to fall off, they're just getting the thing working again. Um, and, and I think people... Sell first and ask questions later with airlines. That's what's happening here after a big run. Coming up, investors piling into gold and crypto as the bank fallout continues. So which one is a chart master betting on? Carter Worth joins us next with his big reveal. And that move in gold is options traders rushing in where they see the GLD heading as a fight on inflation comes into focus. More on that when Fast Money returns. Every day. Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? 
Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Following the Silicon Valley bank collapse, the price of gold soaring as nervous investors are searching for safety. Is this a move that's built to last? Let's bring in the chart master, Carter Worth. Well, I mean, I think it is. But uh, what we can discuss, of course, is the concept of ratio work. We know that people spend a lot of time in looking at large cap versus small cap stocks, value versus growth, the yield curve itself, twos versus tens. What we're going to look at now is the relationship between gold and stocks. So this is a ratio chart. It's gold's relative performance to all stocks, the Russell 3000 index representing 98% of the U.S. investable market. Now, there are no lines there. Let's put some on. So what do we know? If you look at this iteration, that is a well-defined trend line. And where does it start? It starts at the moment the S&P peaked for January of a year ago. Now, put some arrows in just to annotate how precise that line is. It is literally bounced where? To the penny, to the penny, over and over. Now, let's put in the downtrend line. And what you'll see here, that spike in gold in the ratio is the COVID low. Right, The ratio, stocks plunge, and the ratio chart spikes. And so we have these converging trend lines, and today we broke out through the upside of that downtrend line, out of that wedge. You can draw the lines this way. It's the same chart again. You can call it a cup and handle. Final chart, put in the trend line. doesn't matter what you call it. It has all the elements of an important bottom. Hmm. Uh, you know, Carter, we noticed that Bitcoin also took off today. What, what do the charts say about that? Yeah, I think there's a bit more upside. I, I might have a few here. But, uh, you know, think about this. Bitcoin is, is obviously gold on any given day moves 24 basis points in the last two, three years. S&P 50 basis points. Bitcoin's average daily move is about 170. And big day today. I think you can, you know, 28,000 or thereabouts, maybe a little bit more. Uh, downtrend line's clear. You can see it there. We moved above it. We checked back to it and we ricocheted. So a little bit more, but uh, not a lot more. All right, Carter, thank you. Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. Grasso, what do you think of gold? I, I think you, you can't picture a better environment for gold where everything seems to be crumbling around. You would think that people would rush into gold. I don't know if there's a real buyer for gold. I, you know, I don't know who's buying gold right now. I don't, I, I don't think anybody watching the show, I think there's a certain amount of people that would be buyers of gold. And that number has shrunk over the years. But I'll, I'll, just, I'll just address the GLD versus the miners. If you think gold's going up, then the miners usually have a bigger move. It's usually a three to one move. That's where you get the beta out of, the, out of gold, both up and down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the G, as Tim reminded us during the break, <laughs> in lags is actually for gold. So you You'll are. You'll know I remind those. when 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 the setup's pretty you guys good. Are all so uh, you, know, you won't hear from me when the dollar's up twenty percent and gold is down. But it's really it's a dollar trade too. So yeah. so to me, um, if what the Fed has done is stepped in here and and pretty much signaled and and if Fed funds are right, 
you're buying gold because this is an environment where we're stagflationary at best. The dollar, which has certainly been a lot of pressure on gold over the last year and a half during those periods. But as gold uh, started to rally, it was all with the peak of the dollar back in October. A break of 2000 gets you through 10 year levels on gold. And I think you can go a lot higher. All right. Meantime, options traders are using gold as a way to make bets on how the Fed could respond to stop a regional banking crisis from breaking out. Mike Coe joins us now with the action. Mike. Yeah, I mean, to uh, Steve's point, we are seeing a lot of money actually flowing into it. Uh, GLD traded almost seven times its average daily call volume. Uh, that was a notional uh, call volume of about seven and a half billion dollars. So it was the fourth busiest ETF out there after SPY, IWM and the QQQs in terms of call volume. And if it was an equity, it would have been second only to Tesla. And one of the reasons for that, that we saw a very large bet, the May 185 200 call spread, somebody bought almost 50,000 of those, spent $2.25 a contract. That's a bet of a little over $11 million in premium on that single trade. That would be worth nearly 75 million if it does reach that 200 level by May expiration. That's up about 12.5%. And by the way, it was not just in GLD or even just GDX, which is the minor ETF, but across the entire complex. Almost every single gold miner saw two, three, sometimes more than four times their average daily call volume, and also in the futures as well. Traded 26,000 calls. And of course, just to remember that the gold futures are significantly better than uh, bigger than all call contracts on GLD are. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. A lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Financial failure. Markets reeling from the Silicon Valley bank fallout. But could the big drop in rates be a boost to the selling season in housing? Plus, could the drop in regionals present a real buying opportunity? The names and the key levels to watch ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the market. Stocks swaying between gains and losses as investors digested the latest on Silicon Valley Bank fallout. The Dow dropping for a fifth day, down 90 points. The S&P virtually flat, but finishing in the red. And the Nasdaq managing to eke out a gain of nearly half a percent. Some of the home builders catching a bid as rates dropped. DR Horton, Pulte, Lennar, all up about one and a half percent. And shares of Bungie jumping after hours on news. It will replace Signature Bank in the S&P 500. It will take effect on March 15th. Bungie is not a name that we often uh, talk about. I feel like it's a Tim Seymour it's a, name. It's, yeah. probably it's, a, it's, a, it's a throw. It's a throwback it to really to the EM days, and yeah. and it's a name that if if you think about the ag space, and I don't know, we could be talking about potash for that matter. Um, but talk about a change again from from a bank to something that's more brick and mortar. I will say that it hasn't really helped even Bungie over the last couple of days. And if you think about what's been going on in the resource trade, if you look at a lot of those stocks, they've also been under pressure based upon the sense of headwinds here, but interesting day. All right, coming up, is the move in regionals overdone? The KRE falling to its lowest level in more than two years. Is the next mover move lower, or could there be more buys in this bin of disaster in Pfizer, firming up a big biotech purchase? Details on the $43 billion deal next. 
Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. The KRE Regional Bank ETF dropping more than 12% today, touching its lowest level since November 2020. First Republic Western Alliance Metropolitan Bank among the biggest laggards. First Republic closing down 61%. Could some of these beaten down names actually be worthwhile buys at this point? Let's bring in Christopher Marinak, Director of Research at Janie Montgomery Scott. Chris, great to have you with us. Um, Thank you. That was sort of my first reaction. I mean, the, the federal government came to the rescue. Uh, and, and plug the hole. And so is it time to be looking around for some bargains? Are we going to look back on this day and think if you had a steel stomach, this was the time to get into some of them? Yes, I absolutely agree. I, I agree with you. I think when you go back to March of 2020, even September 2020, and, and even in the fall and spring of 2008 and 2009, those were moments to buy banks really on the cheap. And there's a lot of great companies and good management teams that you can acquire at a big discount. And, you know, we advocate taking a flush of tangible book value, including all of the uh, held to maturity securities losses that are unrealized and going forward. I think the market's in the process of doing that. And I think there are a lot of great buys, even the names that were the weakest today. There's a lot of survivors there and ones that can thrive as you look at the next six months. Um, maybe I'm asking you to reveal your, your secret sauce as a bank analyst, Chris, but what specific items are you looking at to determine whether or not these survivors are worth a gamble at this point? I mean, there, there are certain things that we, we've not ever really talked, like non-insured deposits held to maturity. I mean, these are things that we, we don't really talk about. I'm sure you talk about it all the time, but what are you looking for specifically? So you start with tangible book value, and then you have to make adjustments for the unrealized losses that are in securities portfolios. So the available for sale losses are already included in the, what we call the AOCI, but then the held to maturity losses, which really was the wrinkle that uh, particularly was problematic for Silicon Valley, uh, that can be wiped out uh, pretty easily. It's just an accounting uh, entry and you take the after-tax effect per share and that's what we like to do. So when you do that, a lot of names are still inexpensive here, particularly after today's correction, not to mention the, pa uh, the past two days from Thursday and Friday. So the cumulative impact has really led to some excellent buys uh, after today's activity. Um, before we get to the specific names, Chris, I'm wondering, you know, they may seem like buys in the operating environment that exists currently, but what are some of the changes to the operating environment that you will anticipate that could actually be, you know, make it, make it harder for these banks to, to make money? So we think the access to capital uh, will be constrained. Uh, there won't be capital raises for a while. That should be pretty obvious. I think most banks will be profitable in the first quarter. I think reserve building will continue. But the basic spread business is still intact. I think a lot of folks uh, focus on the cost of funds going higher, which is true. But we also have a loan portfolio reset that continues to happen as you drag on higher interest rates from last year and the ongoing Fed tightening. That's going to be positive for spreads on the standpoint of loan yields and earning asset yields. We're just going to have less of that because loans will most likely fall. Earning assets will constrict. The deposit outflows of the past week will, uh, will, will constrain some of that from a dollar perspective. But we think overall credit quality is still excellent in the bank space. And the basic model of banks making money and being able to pay cash dividends is still very strong. I think it's been a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation the past couple of days. And eventually the storm will calm and the seas will uh, part such that banks can go back to trading at book value and higher. 
as we go forward. Again, credit quality is really good and we have much lower risk in the system than folks understand from a pure credit perspective. I think we have definitely slipped on a banana peel as it pertains to this deposit uh, worry and scare. And I think that the movement to the too big to fail banks will not last forever. The main lending in America is still mid-size and small community banks, and I think those companies are, are excellent uh, plays. A lot of them are dirt cheap based on the last few days of trading. Chris, it's Karen. Let me ask something about this: the loan-to-deposit ratio. What did you used to think was a good loan-to-deposit ratio, and has that changed as we think about maybe deposits aren't as sticky as we thought they were? Sure. So in the old days, you used to look at 95 to 100 percent loan to deposit ratios, and now we're much more in the 85 to 90. Um, the challenge that we see is that deposits were falling about four or five percent in the system, and clearly that accelerated in the past couple of days. But at the end of the day, as, as things normalize uh, at the end of the month and into next year, I think being at that 95 percent range is fair. I also think that you will see some contraction of loans as we go forward. Uh, most banks are going to be very careful with their lending at this juncture. And I think that you know credit uh, will be more constrained as a result of the last few week, a few days events. That's unfortunate, but I think that's what will play out on balance sheets. I don't see any extreme jumps. Um, we have a lot of uh, liquidity in the system. The, the challenge is I think we had a, a fear of, of confidence and a misunderstanding on these deposit runs. And to some extent, it was the company's own doing the way they were positioned. So um, I do want to get to names, Chris, because everybody wants to know what, what you would recommend. I want to put back up the chart that we just showed. There was a lot of information on that chart in terms of reading all the dots and, and reading what it means. Lower risk deposit base, J.P. Morgan would fall into that category. A higher risk deposit base, obviously SIVB fell into that. But on this sort of like uh, dot plot chart, Chris, what do, what do you like here? And, and kind of walk us through what you're, why you like it. So we think that there will be plenty of survivors on this list. Uh, I think most of them should be surviving, uh, looking at all the names. I, I particularly like uh, Fifth Third, ticker FITB. I know Tim Spence was on earlier this morning. Uh, I think he has an excellent uh, handle on interest rate risk and also on credit. Uh, they're a very innovative company in the fintech arena, which still has merit as we go forward. Um, and I think they're also very flexible with concentrations. And, and I think that shows in their consistency of earnings over time. Um, Truist, certainly on the chart that you shared, uh, is a company that did a very unique capital uh, move in the last few weeks to sell a portion of their insurance unit that was adding 30 basis points to capital. That's going to help them pass the stress test in June. So that company certainly uh, is not only a survivor, but a thriver. And I think that many of these regional banks that you have here uh, have uh, definitely a lot of good things going for them. And I think as you move down the, the food chain to even more mid-cap names, there's a, a whole list of names that are uh, inexpensive as well. They're, they're positioned very well because credit quality is not the issue today. It's much more of these perceived access to liquidity. And we think liquidity is still really good. It was just the speed at which the, uh, the friendly fire unfolded at Silicon Valley mm -hmm. was just too quick to handle and too much to handle. And of course, it spread, as we all know, to Signature. Slip on a banana peel really sticks out to me because that really implies a sort of like, you know, it's a minor fall, it's a scrape or something, you hurt your knee, your bottom. Um, I have to ask you, did, did you cover Silicon Valley Bank shares and, and what was your rating on it? So our, uh, my colleague Tim Coffey had it rated neutral last week, so that was not uh, an issue for us. I think what transpired was just a, uh, a very quick recognition that the company needed to position and raise capital. Mm -hmm. 
whether they were told that by the regulators or whether they were getting ahead of the rating agencies, I'm not sure we'll ever know. Uh, but it, uh, it unfolded very quickly. And I think the investment community just didn't buy their explanation. And I think right. that was one of the problems last Wednesday and Thursday that led to the demise of the company. Chris, thanks. Great to have you with us. Chris Marinak. See you soon. Thanks. Have a great night. Bonwin, would you be inclined to uh, take a flyer? Yeah, I like Key and I like Fifth Third. Fifth Third is kind of like a super regional. I don't think it has the same... Well, none of them have the risk of contagion. I mean, this is overblown, but I don't think from an operational standpoint it has that risk. And then Key Bank, which is very large in the real estate lending you know, you have hard assets that you know are marked to a certain loan to value. I think it's something that's tangible. I think those two banks kind of stick out to me in terms of being operationally intact. All right, coming up, a biotech buy. Pfizer scooping up CGen for a whopping $43 billion. But could antitrust regulators fizzle this pharma deal? We got the details straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. CGen soaring to its highest level since October 2020 on an acquisition deal from Pfizer, the pharma giant paying $43 billion for CGen, including four of its lucrative cancer-fighting treatments. It is the latest deal for Pfizer as it seeks to beef up its oncology division amid declining COVID-related sales. Pfizer was up, but was that flight to safety or was that this deal is amazing, Tim? I think it's, first of all, this deal's been announced for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I actually bought some Pfizer a couple of weeks ago. It trades at around 11 to 12 times. I think this deal goes through. Any concern that this could be a regulatory, I think, in the oncology space, it's still so wide open and uncompetitive. I applaud Pfizer for spending this COVID windfall. I mean, they basically uh, it, they got a lot of money stuffed in their pockets, and they seemingly have spent almost all of it. And I think it's actually very good. So um, to me, you see where a lot of these healthcare names um, are defensive at a time like this. Pfizer, to me, is investing in their future in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. Plus, there's a there's the term patent cliff is happening right now. So everyone has to reach out and buy something to secure their revenues going forward. That's what you see going uh, going on here. I think the better buy, if you look at Pfizer's chart, it's not impressive. I think the better buy is to buy smaller cap, maybe the XBI, because if everyone has to reach and compensate, then everyone's going to be reaching out on the risk curve for, for these names. Right. The belief that there's going to be more deals. You buy smaller companies, theoretically, Karen. Do you, right. do you buy into but that? I do. Also, I, I hate that feeling waking up to, you know, a failed phase three trial. And if right. you're in an ETF, that's a lot more palatable because it'll be much smaller. But I, I agree, Tim. I think it was a, a, a safety trade more than, oh, this is great, CGEN. I think people like the CGEN deal, just a question of price. Yep. Coming up, 350,000%. The gains in one tech stock hmm. that you need to see to believe the name and if it's still a buy when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. 37 years ago today, a little company called Microsoft went public at $21 a share. Since then, including nine stock splits, shares are up a massive 348,000%. So we thought Microsoft's anniversary would be a great time to play a game of... Trade it for Would you rather? Would you rather what? You had no idea. America's favorite game. Maybe that would have given you a clue. Trade it or fade it. So, Karen, you're first up. Yeah, well, Microsoft. you know, I always say if you went home long, it's like you bought it at the close. I am long, so I guess, yes, trade it. Yeah, why? 
Well, I, I can't say that it's such a bargain. It's not like it's, you know, a great value here, but it's an extraordinary company. And, you know, I still believe there's growth in cloud. And, uh, you know, I like the recurring revenue stream. I'm not in it for chat GPT so much, but um, probably a little bit of inertia as well. Mm. Bono in. Yeah, I'm not too thrilled about this recent chart here, but I don't think this flight to quality is over. And I think when you think about quality, you think about large cap tech, particularly with the moving rates, you think about Microsoft. For that reason, I'm buying it, but I'm not. I'm with Karen. It's not great value. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if your answer would have been different one week ago versus right. today. Yeah, it would have been. It's a good point. I, I would have said faded a week ago. I say trade it tonight. I think it's diversified enough, and they're broken up into a bunch of different revenue streams, and no revenue stream is more than 38 percent of of the re, of the revenue in any given pocket. So I, I think it's quasi. Is that the way you pronounce it? Quasi, quasi, quasi. However you want to do it, Steve. I mean, because I do pseudo, and I, I'm not sure about that one either. Right. How else could you say it? I don't, quasi, I don't know. Pseudo? I don't no, know. I'm not sure. Not, that's awful. Terrible. Pneumonia. I've been saying that for years. So, so I think for me, it, it is definitely a trade, but it is a flight to quality, and who knows how long that lasts. Yeah. How about you, Tim? Trade it or fade? I'm going to fade that, and oh. and I'm going to at least tactically fade it. Because, and I would go back a month ago. I mean, if it wasn't for ChatGPT. And, and then the fact that the triple Qs, uh, NASDAQ 100, have outperformed the S&P by 10.5% in the last 45 days. You've had a great move. So uh, we all know what they've done. We all know that actually like the last um, even five years in Microsoft have been so extraordinary. You've had a couple different phases and obviously uh, the current phase and one where they've really dominated cloud. But valuation is not great. But tactically, as a trader here, you've had a great run. I think you, I think you take some profit. All right. Up next, final trades. for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, McDonald's. We've gotten some data on January sales and even into February. I think the restaurant industry remains strong. Some of the pricing pressure. Uh, McDonald's is very defensive in this environment. Stay long, the Golden Arches. Bono and Ison. Yeah, I would continue to let things like wash out, but when you want to step back into the regionals, fifth third is where I'd look. Steve Grasso, who did step in. I did step in. It was supposed to be a one-day trade, as I said at the top of the show. Key Corp, I'm in it. Let's see how far it can run tomorrow. Wow. Okay, Karen. Yeah, so I'm kind of looking for a little bit of a port in the storm, and particularly maybe even Silicon Valley. So I come back to my favorite, Google. Lots of cash. Maybe potential opportunities now for them. In terms of acquisitions, talent. I don't know. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.